This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, this is Talk Sport, Russ Williams and Spencer, the Omen Oliver with Find of My Life. And what a show we've got lined up for you. How are you doing, Spencer? Yeah, Russ, really well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm really looking forward to this show this evening. This is a childhood hero of mine. Can't wait to get into this one. Yeah, the idea of Fight of My Life is we get a former boxer in to talk about the fight of their life. We've got the build-up, the story behind it, the aftermath, the little things that happen that you and I will not know about. It's all coming up on today's show. We're speaking to this man. This is it. I've done it. I've made it. There's nowhere else to go after this. If I passed away tomorrow... I would be content. Well, I think in something like boxing, the mind plays a big part in it. He no longer had something that he had throughout his career, and that was a psychological edge. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't be in that ring tonight. This is wrong. Right hand, pressure's through as well. Eubank's in trouble here. I suppose you could argue that Eubank is probably his own best self-hypnotist. He tried every means possible to get out of the fight. Look at Eubank, he's been stunned by that. This is unfair. Legal cheating. Basically, I'm prepared for this fight better than I've ever prepared for a fight in my entire career. Mentally and physically, I'm ready. Well, Spencer, before we hear from Steve Collins, the Celtic warrior, what fight are we going to be talking about specifically and how do you sum him up as a fighter? Russ, we're going to be talking about Steve Collins versus Chris Eubank. The first fight they had when Steve Collins had moved up. He had just won the WBO middleweight title and he'd moved up to super middleweight to box Eubanks, who was making his 15th defence of the title. Collins was a big underdog going in there and it was a really memorable night and Collins pulled it off against all the odds in an incredible fight. And it is our delight, of course, to welcome the Celtic warrior Steve Collins to Fight of My Life. Steve, why was it ten and a half months before you fought this fight? I mean, were you concerned remotely that you might have left it too long? And, and how did the fight come about, Steve? What do you remember? Well, I re yeah, I think it was ten and a half months after I won the middleweight title. And uh, I, we had a couple of shows planned, middleweight defences. One in, in the famous High uh, Neon in Hong Kong, which went belly up, it never happened. Um, a lot of the shenanigans went on over there. Next time I was supposed to uh, defend the middleweight title was, in, it was back to my old home of Boston, 
Massachusetts, New England, and unfortunately, I, I, I suffered trying to make the weight because I could no longer make the middleweight division, and I became ill and had to pull out of the fight. And I was contemplating retirement when um, when I was living in Romford next door to the matroom office in Diggs. There, uh, someone came in, uh, knocked on my door, and said, "Steve, uh, there's an opportunity to fight Chris Eubank. Will you take it?" <laughs> I thought it was a wind up. And I said, absolutely, and I snatched it because um, I was about to um, retire as, as, a, as a middleweight because I couldn't make the weight anymore, so it, it suited me perfect to move up to super middleweight, as well as fighting Chris Eubank, who I always wanted to fight. Steve, Eubank was making his 15th defence of that world title. Did you feel he was underdog going in? Uh, well, he was the big name. He was the best-known face in boxing at the time. I'd just returned from America, so I was... I was known in boxing circles, but the public never heard of me. So I knew that going into this fight that he was the um, the golden goose. He was the, the, the Sky TV promoter fighter. He was the one making all the money and, and getting all the uh, attention. So I knew going in that it, financially it made more sense for all involved in, in the business of boxing for him to win. So I knew the odds were against me that I, I had to win more than just winning points. I had to win big to get the decision because I was I was taking on the uh, the money earner as well as as, as uh, the well-known champion so I, I never felt underdog personally but I was on, on the bookies and everybody else's opinion going into the fight at early stages of the fight being announced I was classed as the underdog Now one of the controversial things in the build up to this fight we'll come on to your training camp and sparring in uh, a couple of minutes Steve was the involvement of Dr. Tony Quinn. I don't know whether you call him a hypnotist or a mind doctor or a, a psychologist, but this is something that with Chris Eubank didn't go down well at all. He was doing interviews with television saying, you know, I shouldn't be getting in that ring tonight. I've fought 43 fights. I've always known what opponent I'm facing. He said to me, what Steve Collins has done with Dr. Quinn is wrong and legally cheating. I wanted to call a fight off. That's why I would qualify off if I could now, because I'm going into unknown territory. The 43 fights I've had in the past, I've always known what I was dealing with. I don't know what I'm dealing with tonight. I'm fighting someone who is mechanically orientated, and that is just an unknown area. It's not fair that I should be put into the situation. How do you react to that, or do you remember how you felt about that at the time, and why did you get hypnotised? Well, in answer to the first question, there were his reactions as soon as we um he fell into our trap at the weigh-in and they are the reactions of a man whose ass went he bottled it and he tried every means possible to get out of the fight because he no longer had something that he had throughout his career and that was a psychological edge and the plan was to take away his psychological edge and bring it down to just bare manos to manos it was him and i getting into the ring and he had no psychological advantage and he, he never faced that situation before where he hadn't got the psychological edge and I think he uh, you know it scared him it was unknown territory for him he hadn't got the uh, the feeling of control going into the fight he felt it was just him and I it was no longer the, um, the psychological edge that he would get knowing that he had everyone behind him supporting him and wanting him to win Steve you could clearly see that it, it did bother him he, he publicly spoke about that you also weighed in with your clothes on as well. Was that, again, part of the mind games? No, the weigh-in with my clothes on was the, the weigh-in for TV. The, the official weigh-in took place in a, in a room at the back of the venue. 
which of course we both stripped off. And actually, I I was overweight. I I was actually skipping weight to drop off a pound or two when Eubank arrived into the weigh room area, and he came right up to me and started to give me some. And I wouldn't say abuse, but he was criticising my professionalism for not being on weight and so on, and saying that the fact that I hadn't met, wasn't on weight was unprofessional. And obviously, he was putting me down. This is you know his psychological edge before we came in with our little psychological attack afterwards at the uh, press conference. But the way and you're talking about, because it was it, it was the St. Patrick's Day parade in, in Mill Street on, on the day of the weigh-in, and I think the parade ended at the venue, and something like three or 4,000 people showed up for the weigh-in. So they obviously couldn't fit them all into the small room where the official weigh-in was, so they asked us afterwards, would we do a weigh-in for the, for the public who've shown up to see the weigh-in event? So after the official weigh-in, we all came to the venue and, and they put the scales up in the, in the middle of the ring in the venue and, and we had got up in the scales and weighed in there. I left my tracksuit on, uh, but Eubank stripped off to his underwear because he wanted to show off his physique and wanted to let everyone think that he was great, you know, and how fit he was and how muscly he was and wanted to impress them all. So he got into his underwear, which didn't make any difference because the weigh-in was already done. Barry Hearn, who was Chris Eubank's promoter, was interviewed um, apropos your hypnotism and, and he said, and I thought it was a really interesting point, he said, well, Chris Eubank is possibly the greatest self-hypnotist that there is in the world of sport. And I thought that was an interesting comment. Just before we move away from Dr. Tony Quinn, Steve, what's, what sort of exercises did he do on you, if that's the right phrase, in terms of hypnotism? And how did he actually get you hypnotised? I'll just take a small step back about the comment that Barry Hearn made about Chris Eubank, and it's absolutely uh, true what he said. And because of Eubank's uh, mindset and, and mind games going into boxing, I went to the hypnotist because I realised I was going to fight Chris Eubank at some stage of my career. So I studied him and I watched him and I understood his self-hypnosis and I understood his mind games and I understood his psychological edge. And I, th- I said to myself, if ever I get the opportunity to fight him, I'm going to have to uh, beat him at his game, the psychological game as well as the, the physical fighting game. When the fight was announced, I knew then I wanted to uh, trap him and beat him at his own game of, of, of uh, psychological warfare. And it was then I contacted a, the hypnotist, a sports hypnotist as, uh, and, and hypnotherapist, uh, Dr. Quinn, and asked him for advice and coaching. Because like boxing, football, if you take up some sport or you have an interest in something, you talk, you go to people who are the best at it and ask them for advice and coaching. So I went to him and asked him for some coaching and preparation, asked him to work with me to uh, get the psychological edge and, and, and take away Chris Eubank's psychological edge. And that's when I, Tony Quinn came in to uh, give me advice on how to, how to do it. Did he put you under? You know, I'm sure oh. it wasn't looking into my eyes, uh, Steve, <laughs> sleep and all that. How did, how did he do it? Well, it's... Uh, a sports therapist, a, a, a hypnotherapist, a sports psychologist, it is hypnotism, you know. But, you know, we hypnotise each other all the time. You sit down, you get someone to relax, you get someone's attention, you, you talk to them about a product, you talk to them about a, a topic, and you have their attention, they're listening to you, you're instilling something onto their unconscious mind, and basically you're hypnotising people. So I went to him and explained to him what my plan was, what I wanted to do, and him being a professional in hypnosis, could advise me and, 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 and coach me and how to, how to go about getting my message across to Chris Eubank unconsciously or consciously, however. And that's what I implied him for. But the, the bonus was with Dr. Quinn or Tony Quinn. 
he was also a super athlete in his day. He was a martial artist, he black belt in karate. He was also a bodybuilder ch- champion. So the guy was an all-round um, ideal candidate to give someone some coaching. So with him, you know, he helped me with the psychological edge. He also educated me to uh, diet and nutrition. So it was, it, was, it was a win-win situation for me. Tony said before the fight, when in an interview with Gary Norman, he said that actually what he'd done was he'd hypnotised you to make the punches seem three times slower and the head to seem three times bigger. <laughs> I've slowed down, so when he sees the punches coming at him, they look about three times slower than normal. And we've done this in the training sessions and it's worked very well. We've also made the target three times bigger. So it's much easier for him to be aware of what's happening. His head was big enough anyway, he didn't need to get any bigger. Um, if you're in a, in a, sitting at a table in a room and you're with somebody there who scares you and you're in a frightened and worried situation, everything's going to seem worse. If you're sitting there and you've just been told Steve Conn's been hypnotised, he's a machine, you're going, oh my God. And, and, you're, and the next thing the guy says, and by the way, he's going to look at you and your head's going to be three times bigger and he's going to be punching three times faster and he won't feel pain he's gonna it wasn't it was just adding to his fear more and more and this is what hit him the night before the fight after the weigh-in so he came in you know very cocky you know it's my show you know i'm chris eubank i'm simply the best look at the promo on sky tv at the time for the fight it was like a two three minute promo and it was all chris eubank knocking people out chris eubank different angles different images bigger than life it was all about him and in one swoop, we took that away. So all of a sudden, he realised, I don't have this advantage anymore. I've actually now got to get in and fight this guy. He's not scared. That mindset is what my brother installed into uh, Kevin McBride when he fought Mike Tyson. Because Mike Tyson was bigger, was a monster. People saw Mike Tyson, they saw a monster. But in reality, he was, he was small. He was short. He wasn't a monster, but he had built up this reputation that people feared him and believed he was you know, 100 times stronger and better than he actually was because this fear was, was, was instilled in people. My brother, not, not as a hypnotist, not a psychologist, but who was, was with me in training camp and, and boxed with me throughout his career as a professional, understood the mind games. And he sat with Kevin McBride and he told Kevin McBride a story about the Eubank. And Kevin McBride realised that Mike Tyson wasn't a monster, that he was bigger than Mike Tyson, he was stronger than Mike Tyson, he was younger than Mike Tyson, and he, he was going to knock out Mike Tyson out. So when he met Mike Tyson in the ring and prior to the ring, Mike Tyson realised that and kept Mike Bride, he was a big, strong young man, big, raw heavyweight who wasn't scared of him. I mean, I'm going to go on. I don't want to rush through this whole show because I think you want me to talk for an hour, which is probably something that Irish guys can do anyway. this We're all talking about the first fight. I beat him more convincingly in the second fight and I'm still waiting for the excuse for that one. did not even hear his own ring introduction. Now that's the hypnotist, Dr. Tony Quinn, disrobing him there. He's taking off the headphones. Now he says that all this hypnotism is going to make him punch harder. He says he's going to change his footwork. I must say, I thought Steve Collins was a pretty good fighter without all of that. You're listening to Talk Sport, Fight of My Life, Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver, the Celtic Warriors. Steve Collins is with us talking about the night he became super middleweight champion of the world. He was already a middleweight champion, of course. 18th of March, St. Patrick's Day weekend, 1995, at the Green Glens Arena. Just before we get into the uh, fight day itself, Steve, just a, a, another question very quickly about 
Chris Eubank, do you think, he never said anything as far as I'm aware, do you think in his mind he doubted himself a little bit because of the experience after the Michael Watson fight? No. That's the simple answer to that. Chris Eubank loves to, uh, to give excuses rather than give credit to somebody who was never will I ever say I was better than Chris Eubank in any way at all because Chris Eubank I think was a heavier punch than me he was tougher than me he was stronger than me he probably beat me in, in, in every department my success against Chris Eubank didn't come because I was better than him because I wasn't I planned my fight better plus I had the experience under my belt of being with the greatest coaches in the world you know throughout my professional career I had a better arsenal of punches I was just a better educated fighter and I just planned, I planned my attack better than him. So in, in boxing, you know, some of the most talented fighters don't always win the fights. It's the guys with the better fight plan and the better educated fighters can beat them by nullifying the other guy's advantages or strengths. So you wake up on the day of the fight in your native island. Do you remember how you were feeling? Was it the same as every other fight or was it slightly different? No, it was, it was slightly different. It was, it was the biggest occasion in my, in my career as a, as, an, as a an athlete from beginning right to the end it was everything about it, it was like a rocky movie I mean the drama that was involved in it I mean the, how I got there in the first place and the fact that it was taking place in a show jumping arena in the southwest of Ireland which was the sticks on the St. Patrick's Day weekend I mean if, if, if it was a movie it would be like it would be corny it would be like you know a John Wayne quiet man movie it was so corny but it was actually real Everything about it was, 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 was just unbelievable. And I do recall waking up in the morning of the fight, having gone through the drama at the weigh-in before, and it was all going to plan. It was going great, and I was so excited. I thought it was a done deal. And I picked up the newspapers, and um, I have to say, the tabloids who made absolute fortunes with Chris Eubank because he, he sold newspapers. The next day, I thought, unfairly, they slaughtered him. They just ridiculed him. You know, the headlines was, you know, you turn... You know, one tabloid, uh, you coward, and another tabloid. You know, and I just thought, uh, very short memories to these people. And, and um, But I, in reading these newspapers, I was, I was all excited. But at the back of my mind, I had to keep reminding myself, I still have to fight him. <laughs> you know, this, this is all looking great, but I know and I understand the mindset of, of, of a fighter, especially a champion, that when the bell rings, you come out punching and it's going to be a, a war. So I had to keep reminding myself, I might have got this psychological edge yesterday and I might have got him on the back foot and I might have got his attention now and taken away the psychological edge. At the, when the bell rings, he's going to come out punching and no matter what you say, he's still going to be as tough and determined and strong physically as he ever was before. Psychologically, I may have knocked him, but instinctively he will fight. And I had to keep reminding myself of that because otherwise I would have got carried away and probably walked into something. Steve, you arrive at the venue, we get into the dressing rooms, you're getting your hands wrapped. What was going through your mind then and, and, and what was the atmosphere like in those dressing rooms? I suppose it was, it was no different from other fights. It was, obviously, it was a bigger occasion, a bit more media attention. But I was, I was always quite intense uh, in training camp and in, in, in my dressing room. You know, I was a limited fighter but I had extreme determination, so I had to concentrate on everything. I mean, I, I always put myself as the underdog and always, you know, kept myself down and, and convinced myself I was going to have to work really hard to win, had to concentrate. So in the dressing room, I was um, just preparing myself, thinking about the fight, going through it over and over again. And at the back of my mind, I was also thinking that 
success here will eventually, you know, propel me, you know, in, 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 into the in, into the uh, limelight, which gives me a chance to show people how good I am and what I can do. And I've wait, you know, I'm in my early thirties. I'm getting towards retirement age. This is the last chance I'll ever get. If I don't do it now, I'll be too old. The pressure was on in every department. Plus, you know, it it it. I was taking on Chris Eubank. I was taking on Sky TV. I was taking on Matchroom. I I was I was the little the, the small fish in the big pond. I was the pawn in the game here. I hadn't got the power. I hadn't got anybody. I wasn't the ticket seller. I wasn't the big name. I wasn't the one who had to deal with Sky TV. I wasn't the one that put uh, Barry Hearn on the map. So I knew it was it made more business, better business for uh, him to win. So I knew it was taking on the system as well as the fighter. So I had a lot, I had a lot on my plate. So I just tried to concentrate on that, not let it affect me, and just stay positive. Did that frustrate you at all? No, it didn't frustrate me. No, it just made me realise that the job ahead of me that evening, you know, what I was, what I was taking on, it was. Chris Eubank was a big money earner then. I wasn't. So it made every sense for him to be successful. And don't kid yourself, the sport of boxing, professional boxing, is a business first, sports second. So it's all about making money and getting bums and seats. And he was the one that made the money and got the bums and the seats. And I had to take that away from him and it wasn't going to be easy. So beating Chris Eubank in the ring, I thought, was, was, was half the job. On the TV commentary, Ian Dark, as you begin your ring walk, uh, says uh, Steve Collins coming into the ring. He sees this as his gateway to millions. He's 30 years old. He regards this fight as his gateway to millions. Now, I've covered this sport for a few years now, and I've rarely seen a fighter with the kind of manic intensity that Steve Collins to this contest. You began to make your way to the ring. You looked so emotional, almost at the point of being close to tears. He looks very, very focused. You see him mouthing the words there, champ, champ. He's telling himself he's going to be the champ. There are almost tears of emotion there. Was your head racing or were you focused on a single thing then? Do you remember? Yeah, this thing about tears, I don't get this. I think I had grease on my face, but it looked like there was tears rolling down my cheeks. It was just a Vaseline. <laughs> um, no, I was I was then in, in the warrior mindset, which is something I, I could always do as a kid. Once once I made a decision and got into my own mindset, I walked at that ring. I was in a different... I was gone. I was a different planet. I was the, I became the warrior. So walking to that ring, you know, I, 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 I realised looking at the video, I was talking to myself... You know, listening to what I was saying to myself, convincing myself what was going on, trying to blank out the um, the crowd, the atmosphere, the pressure, and just keep talking to myself and what I'm going to do. I do recall, you know, standing in the centre of the ring, my arms up, walking around. And I almost smelled, and I tried to absorb the atmosphere and take the energy from the crowd and, and just try and get all the positives out of it. He's really trying to take in all the atmosphere. He's trying to become part of this support. You go and sit down in the corner, put your headphones on with your with your hood up, as Eubank makes that ring entrance on that famous Harley Davidson. What was the reason behind that? Well, this was the final uh, plan. This was the big part of the psychological edge. I have gone, as I said, I studied my opponents before I fought him, and I'd been to Eubank boxing events, and I watched, and I saw what happened, and I'd see his opponents walk to the ring and wait in the ring for him. And while they're waiting in the ring, they have the giant screens above the boxing ring and on the giant screens 
before Eubanks ended, we'd see clips of the giant, the monster Eubank knocking people out and the sounds booming as Eubank hit people. Boom, Eubank knocks out a guy. Boom, Eubank knocks out something else. And standing in the corner watching this is the opponent who's looking up at this giant screen who's getting smaller and he's getting smaller and he's getting weaker and he realises it's not about him, it's about Eubank. And then the rockets, the flares, the lights start flashing and Eubank had raised up from nowhere among the clouds in a motorcycle. What next from the Christopher Livingston Eubank School of Outrageous Entrances? Well, tonight's edition features one of his beloved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. I'm told it's a 1975 shovelhead, for those of you who know about those things, worth £10,000 step off the motorcycle, he's walked to the ring, everybody will be singing, singing Simply the Best. Even the opponent's cornermen will be singing Simply the Best. He had them all in his grip, he hypnotised the whole room, and his opponent would sit there realising, it's not about me, it's about him, I'm just cannon fodder. I had to take this away from Eubank. This was his final opportunity, opportunity to steal the moment psychologically. So I, was t- I said to myself, when he's coming to this ring, he wants to get into my head and show it's all about him, not about me, and take back the psychological advantage. Well, I have to cut that out, so I'm going to totally ignore him, and I'm going to stay, sit down in my corner, with my hood up, listening to my music, and I'll, I'll see him when the bell rings. Now look at Steve Collins shutting his mind off to the entire episode. What a picture that is! Unbelievable, isn't it? What was the music you was listening to, and was that part of the hypnotism? This morning. My alarm went off because I got up a little earlier because I was getting picked up to come in here. My alarm went off to the music of Gonna Fly Now. Rocky Balboa, the first fight, the theme music came on. And when I heard that music, I jumped out of bed and I wanted a shadow box. To this day, when I hear that music, and I think most people, when they hear the music from the original Rocky movie, they all want to get up and fight. And I, to me, this whole occasion was a movie. It was like the Rocky Balboa story. And when I walked down, I came into that music. And when I sat in the corner, I put my earphones on, phones on and I played the music in my mind. And when I heard it, it just, the hairs on my neck stand up. And that's what kept me going. And that's what gets me going to this day. And that's what I listened to in the corner. So the preparation was done, Steve. You had total belief. Um, the pantomime of... And it was a bit like that of Chris Eubanks' ring entry, mostly done for television, and a bit of psychology, as you've explained, was done. And the fight begins, round one. The crowd are going bananas. I don't know whether you could hear them. Steve-o, Steve-o, they're shouting and singing. And you come out counter-attacking Eubank from the off. Was that the game plan? Well, people didn't know what to expect from me. And I've been schooled in boxing, and I could changed my style and I came out and I planned, I said, I'm going to get right up close to Eubank, I'm going to put him under pressure but I'm going to put him under counter pressure people didn't know what I was even talking about, what do you mean you're going to put him under pressure, I said, I'm going to stand in front of him press forward but I'm going to counter punch him, and people think counter punching is on your bike running away, I said it's not let me show you how to beat him so I, I planned my fight and um, I, I, yeah I, I stood close to him and counter punched him Steve, at the end of round one, you've got your trainer and Dr John Quinn is there. I mean, that technically wasn't allowed, was it? You're only allowed one man in your corner. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, the southwest of Ireland. It's it's Paddy's weekend. It's a venue I think it has a capacity of eight thousand, had something like nine thousand in it. The heat was unbelievable. The place was hopping. It was Steve Collins versus Chris Eubank. Everyone was watching. I don't think people realised that there was probably one or two extra guys in the corner at that stage. It was that's the occasion. It got to everybody, so no one even noticed. I will say one thing: when I did come back after the first round, I thought to myself, "This guy Eubank is tough. I've hit him, and he hasn't moved, and he's hit me, and he hurt me." Reality had set in, <laughs> but I, I was prepared, and I knew I had a hard twelve rounds ahead of me. You'd done your homework. You just seemed to be, every time Chris Eubank threw a shot, you counter-punched him so fast and you seemed to find a rhythm and you was working well with the jab and beating him to the punch. My amateur train at the end of my career was a professional British champion. Young John McCormick, who was British late heavyweight champion, okay, professional. So he educated me. My first coach professional was a guy called uh, Bobby Paget in London and Thomas Beckett. An amazing coach. And then from there... United Kingdom didn't work for me. I wanted the American style. From there, I left London and I moved to Brockton, Massachusetts to the home of Marvis Marvin Hagler. I'm in the gym. I'm on a punch bag and the bag beside me is middleweight champion of the world, Marvis Marvin Hagler, my idol at that time. I'm getting coached by the people that coached him. I spent many years there. From there, I went to Floyd Patterson, former heavyweight champion of the world, who, by the way, was no bigger than me. He was more, no more than a blown-up middleweight. But yet this guy was good enough to be heavyweight champion of the world. He taught me boxing moves and, and tricks. From him, I went to north of Ireland, Belfast, to be trained by a great Panamanian trainer, Bernard Checker. Bernard Checker taught me how to fight on the inside, like the great Mexicans do, like the great South Americans do. I learned that from him. From there, I went to Freddie King in London, who had four or five world champions under his belt at the time. I learned so much from Freddie King about cutting the ring off and power on the right hand. From him, I went to Freddie Roach, my old buddy from Boston who I fought with, one of the greatest boxing coaches of all time. And from Freddie Roach, I received the education and tuition. When I was stepping in the ring with people like Chris Eubank, I had all this knowledge behind me. I could change and I could adapt and do different things, not because I was any better, but because I was educated. I always felt in control because he couldn't show me anything that I wasn't prepared for, that I couldn't answer. Coming up on Fights of My Life on Talk Sport. Very emotional because a lot of things come back in your life, you know. This is it. I've done it. I've made it. If I passed away tomorrow, I would be content. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Eubank looks tired, his hands are down and he's taking deep breaths. Chris Eubank is in serious trouble here. The right hand punch from him was a good one, but he needs a lot more of that. Oh, crushing left hand. The Collins takes the punches as the foul goes to end that round. Eubank punches the air. Steve Collins here is having a very big night at the moment. Fun of my life here on Talk Sport, Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver in the company of Steve Collins, the Celtic warrior, against Chris Eubank, the ego has landed at Green Glens Arena, Cork, 18th of March, 1995. We're into the fight. Rounds one, two and three have gone. It's going okay. And I know, Steve, that the fight was over 20 years ago and you can't remember all of it. Rounds four to seven, <laughs> nip and tuck. I remember to be the honest. good Both of you <laughs> getting moments of success. Round eight, though, Eubank goes down from a body shot. You'll remember this. Was it the turning point? Yeah, I'd landed some good headshots and um, they weren't taking effect. But going back, when I was in LA training, not only was Dr. Quinn a martial artist, I also trained in a gym run by a guy called Benny the Jet, one of the greatest martial artists of all time, who I think Bruce Lee was coached by. And we, we practiced the Bruce Lee one-inch punch. And we practiced it over and over and over again. And that's the punch that put Chris Eubank over, was the one-inch punch to his chest. The right hand of his chest was the, was the Bruce Lee one-inch punch. We had a bag hanging in the back of a house on the hills in LA. And we used to practice that one-inch punch over and over again, the Bruce Lee one-inch punch. And that's the one that hit him over, that, that actually took Eubank off his feet. The big left hook I came back with after it fortunately or unfortunately missed him. I honestly believe if that left hook had landed, I think I would have knocked him out cold. But I'm glad I didn't land because the rematch with Eubank was my payday. If I'd have knocked him out, I wouldn't have got that payday. So I'm glad, yeah, I missed him with the left hook after the right hand. But that right hand was a one-inch punch that we practiced that Bruce Lee was famous for and that's where I stole that one from. 
We get into round nine. Eubank comes out and misses with a massive overhand right hand. You jump on him and start landing some really good shots, Steve. At this stage, Eubank's now starting to look tired. Did you feel that you were getting the better of him? No, I knew then that's when he was most dangerous. He was like Nigel Ben. Chris Eubank was most dangerous when he was under pressure. And he felt he was losing the fight. And he, he knew then that he needed the knockout. So I was just cautious and weary. But I was cautious and weary from the first round on was I just understood was you know what he was looking for and what he was doing. I could, I could almost sense and read his body language. I knew what he needed. I knew he needed knockout because I, I was winning. Yeah, I think he knew that he needed that knockout and we get to round 10, a straight right hand through the middle and this time, Steve, he catches you and he catches you flush. There are nine minutes remaining for Chris Eubank to salvage his WBO Super Middleweight Championship. And this is 15th defense of the right hand's got Collins! The right hand's got Collins! Mandatory eight count and another twist in the plot. He's okay, I think. You go down and you get up at nine, but you looked hurt at this stage, but you showed amazing I have to stop powers. You of... I have to stop you there. You've got to watch that. You know, you obviously are watching the fights, but you're not really yeah. watching close. He caught me square. As I was going down, I tried to save myself by grabbing the ropes. I went down on one knee, and you can see me grin and smile from ear to ear. And I looked at Eubank. I winked at him, and I nodded. He knew I wasn't hurt. I knew I wasn't hurt. I looked at the referee, and I finished the referee's count for him. And I got up and Eubank ran at me to try and finish me. And I sidestepped him and I landed a shot and he looked at me and looked at him and he knew I wasn't hurt and he hesitated because he knew I was still in control and he, he, it wasn't going his way. Yeah, it was a tough, gruelling fight and you showed amazing powers of recovery, Steve, to but I wasn't move hurt. the way you but did. But I wasn't hurt. That's the whole thing. I wasn't, I wasn't hurt. If you look at it again... You see, I was caught flush. I went down and I tried to, I tried, he seemed to try to grab the ropes. When someone gets hit in the chin, the legs go and they clap. They're not trying to grab onto the ropes to save their balance. If they are, they're not knocked out. They're conscious, they're aware. And I, people said a big right hand. Eubank hit me harder shots than that throughout the fight that I didn't show. But I was square. I was off balance. I smiled at him. I, I mean, even before I hit, I went down, I was grinning at the, at the fact that I was off balance. And I, was, I was more embarrassed than anything else. And throughout that fight, if you look closer, I, me and Eubank, we had conversation during that fight we spoke to each other in the, in, in the fight we said things to each other we looked at each other we winked we nodded it was, a, it was more than a battle of just physical it was, it was a battle of minds I spoke to him I started talking to Eubank at the, when we were called to the centre of the ring at the beginning of the fight my conversation with Chris Eubank started then throughout the fight I spoke to him there was a lot, a lot more going on in that fight than obviously you know, to the eye Steve, what were you saying to Chris Eubank? Can you share with us some of the exchanges? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was calling me on. He, st- he, tried to, he, he wasn't landing with me, so he tried to suck him in. He started calling me forward. And I put my hands out and says, Chris, I'm winning. You've got to come to me. I mean, this is, what, how we, this is, this is the conversation we were having. Do you understand? When I blocked the shots with my elbow, look, and I went, I actually said to him, what do you think of that? Wasn't that good? Do you understand? This is how it went on. I spoke to him throughout the fight. Speaking as an ex-fighter and, and someone speaking to you through the fight, that really is, that does play mind games because you get inside the head of the opponent. Now, Eubank was great at getting inside his opponent's head, but actually you flipped it, Steve, and you'd done that in the build-up to the fight and during the fight as well. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was something that was prepared for mentally and physically, getting back to the, the whole mind games. Boxing is not just a physical thing, it's a mental thing. And Eubank, 
you know, mentally was prepared and, and he he had the psychological edge. And that's what was great about it. That's why I watched I watched Eubank two, three years before I fought him and I saw something in him and I went, this is what this guy does. I have his card now. His card is marked. I will have him one day and I now know how to beat him. I see what makes him successful. I know what his big advantage is and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to nullify that when I, when I do fight him. I knew I was going to fight him. I chased him for years. We get into round 11 and Eubanks trainer Ronnie Davis is screaming at Eubanks, telling him he needs to stop you. Two rounds. Go forward. Go forward. Stop him. Ronnie Davis right. in the corner. Stop him. Come on, come on. Go forward and stop him, says Ronnie Davis. Did you feel that at that stage of the fight, Steve? Oh, yeah, I knew. I said, two rounds to go. This is dangerous for me. He he wants to keep his title. He's, he's dangerous and he, he can hurt me and he does hurt. I had to be prepared for... It's big Grand Slam finish because he was Chris Eubank was dangerous up until the last minute of the last round. He had an amazing strength and power, and you could not relax with him because he he would catch you. He was always dangerous in the ring. The final round, you picked up a cut over the left eye, Steve. Did that bother you at, at that stage, or did you feel that no. you'd already won the fight? No, it didn't bother me. And it's a shame um, at the time. I think Sky TV missed a great opportunity then because Sky TV's camera was focused on Eubank before the final bell for the last round was ringing. They never put the camera on me. I actually got up off my stool and I turned to the crowd and I waved to the crowd and I got them all going. The cameras went on my, me and my corner because it was, it was Chris Eubank's show. It wasn't my show. The camera, for the, the, you know, before he came out for the final round, was in, was in Chris Eubank's corner, not my corner. But if you watch, if you watch it, you'll hear a big cheer you know, from, the, from, from the crowd. It was me standing up to the crowd, waving to the crowd, giving them all the, the fist punch. This is it, last round. I'm the champion. I'm going to win. But the cameras went on me. So Sky TV missed a great opportunity there because it was a great moment. And it said an awful lot about, you know, the fight. When the fight was over, Steve, I presume that you were pretty convinced that you'd won. Everybody was in the ring, the promoters, the trainers, uh, you know, the officials, all sorts of people. Chris Eubank, noticeably, after about 30 seconds after the fight, is wandering around and saying to himself, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. No, he's saying Looking like, quite anxious. He was saying, I got a draw, I got a draw. Which is probably you think what so? You, you can read, you can, you can hear him, you can see him saying it. I knew I won the fight. Was I going to get the decision? I didn't know. I didn't actually, really, I didn't care. I didn't care because I knew I won the fight. And 20 years has passed so quick that if, if, I, if he had got that decision... I would be okay with that because I could put my head in the pillow and say, yeah, he got the decision, but everybody knows I won the fight. And that's the fighter's mindset and mentality. It's yeah. about winning the fight. You hope then that the judges and the officials are on your side, and not on your side, you hope they're neutral and you hope they're fair and you hope they see it as they should see it, which doesn't happen in the game always. <laughs> but I knew I'd well, won the fight. No matter what the decision was, I knew yeah. I won. When the judges Agreed. came, and they, I do really call the judges actually, they were, they were, I thought they were very accurate. When the decisions, well, well, most of them were. 114, 116, <laughs> 111, 115, 113, 114, all in favour of you. And that's yeah. why you were the new WBO super middleweight champion of the world. You must have just been elated. Greatest moment. It's, it's, it's uh, emotional. Very emotional because a lot of things come back in your life. You know, why did you start boxing? Going back to a kid, your dad bringing you to the gym, the memories. The whole lot, you felt like, this is it, I've done it, I, I've made it, there's nowhere else to go after this. You know, if I passed away tomorrow, I would be content because I've done what I said I'd do and I fulfilled 
my ambitions beyond my belief and I put my, my I put myself I put boxing and my family on the map for boxing my family were a boxing family and boxing tradition the history in our families we all loved the game and I felt I put them on the map and I was very proud and then after that then the next day when I slept and woke up after having a few beers I said to myself I gotta make some money <laughs> <laughs> I want well, a piece. Of, I want a piece fight. of the action now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The purse for this fight was one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, wasn't it? It was, but you know, you have tax, you have managers, you have coaches, you have expenses. I mean, it was. But in those days, you could buy a house for less than hundred grand. So after that fight, I was a millionaire. I thought, <laughs> and uh, I think I did buy my first home, put a deposit down on my first house, and I thought, you know, I have now beating Chris Eubank against all the odds and if you know if he wants his chance to take back his title I'll give it to him but they're going to have to pay me but he got paid at least otherwise um, I won't give him the chance so I, I made my payday after, with the Chris Eubank rematch and I waited for him you know what happened in boxing when someone wins a world title especially against the odds they grab they seize the opportunity they fight a few um, pushovers put a few bob in the bank and then they'd go back to the big risk fight again. Because of Chris Eubank's whinging and excusiitis, we call it, I said, look, if he really feels that way, I'll give him a rematch straight away. And I offered a rematch straight away. I think Chris Eubank had two fights against two hams in the meantime, two easy paydays, some more money in the bank, thanks to Sky TV. So he, I let him have them couple of fights, knocked out a couple of guys. But I said, I'll wait and give him his rematch because... Fair enough, he's a great champion and he deserves a rematch. Every great champion deserves a second chance, so I gave him a second chance. Spencer Oliver, you're listening to Talk Sport if you're a fight fan. So far, it's been a fascinating hour, hasn't it, Spencer? Yeah, it certainly has. Steve, I want to talk to you about what the atmosphere was like in that dressing room. You've just got victory against Chris Eubank. The crowd there were amazing. The scenes looked incredible. What was the atmosphere like in the dressing rooms afterwards? What actually went on in the dressing rooms? Well, obviously, we were elated. It was amazing, but... The dressing room, the people in the dressing room when I got back were family and close friends who'd been there throughout my career for the ups and downs. They never gave up on me. You know, I came back, uncles, cousins, aunts were all there, friends who followed me and never gave up on me. That's what was in my dressing room. And to get back with them, it was like we done it. It wasn't about me. 
was about us. It was a, it was a trip we've been on for years. I mean, my family travelled all over the world to see me fight. Some people even came to Hong Kong to see me fight. They travelled all over the world. They come, used to come to the United States to see me fight over there all the time. And, you know, that was our reward because they, ne- they never uh, gave up on me. They always believed in me. So the atmosphere back in the dressing room was absolutely amazing. And But then all of a sudden, though, I felt for the first time in my, in my boxing career, I now had the belt around my waist. I was now in control of my career. I am now going to make the, the decisions. It's my life now, and it's, it's, it's what's best for me from that point onwards. After winning that fight, you beat Eubank again in an immediate rematch. You also went on to beat Nigel Benn twice and make seven more successful defences before you retired. And you retired world champion. Why did you retire? I grew up in an era of the 80s, which was one of the best eras of, in middleweight boxing prior to, you know, Sugar Robinson's era. It was a great time. Duran, Leonard, Haynes, Hagler. We followed suit after them. And it was a great era. My era was Jones, Ben. Eubank, James Tony, they were great fighters. You know, in the latter days of Mike McCallum, great fighters. And I wanted to fight them all. I wanted to fight the best. After the Eubank fight and after the Nigel Ben fight, I was I was I was comfortable. I was happy. I had achieved my my goals. I was in my early thirties, getting on in, as a fighter. Some people would have said I never felt that way. But physically getting on as a fighter, I never felt physically I was getting on. But I was getting older. And I missed home. I spent a lot of time away. I was based in LA. My family was an eight-hour flight away. I'd have two or three fights a year. I spent two or three months in training camp. I was spending nine months a year away from home. I missed my kids. I missed my family life. But the drive that kept me going was to achieve something great, something bigger. And the biggest thing out there for me was the big names in boxing. And the one last fight for me, the only reason I hung around for the last two fights of my career was they kept promising me they'd make the Roy Jones fight. And that was, that was what kept me going. But upon realisation that it was never going to happen, I remember being in training camp one day, waking up early in the morning, and instead of getting out and running, I lay in bed and I just thought, for what? What am I getting up for? Who am I fighting next? I don't know. What's it, what am I fighting for? I don't know. Why, would I, why do I want to keep on going? Because I want Roy Jones. I'm not going to get Roy Jones. Well, now I'm homesick. No, I miss my family. Now I miss my kids. I don't want to be here anymore. I've no reason to be here anymore. I've nothing else left to prove. Plus, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, and I'm happy. And I'm at the top of my game, and there's nowhere else to go. So I always said the morning the alarm bell goes off and I don't get out of bed to train, it's over. I didn't go out into the cold. I didn't make the sacrifice. And if you're not willing to do that in, in boxing, get out, because you'll get hurt. And when I re- reached that decision the pressure and the relief that psychologically, physically left. It was like a weight coming off my shoulders. I felt light in my feet and I felt good. And I went, realise, this is great. I've done it. And I'm glad now. I, I accept it's over. I've gone as far as I can go. There's nothing left to prove. The one thing that would keep me going is never going to happen. So it's time to get out. And I left at the top of my game. And, you know, there was. it took me a year or two to, to accept it because I boxed for 25 years non-stop. It's like leaving the, you know, leaving the army. If you go into the army as a young, as a young soldier... And you spend 25 years there, to all of a sudden walk out and come into civil life. It's a very hard adjustment. So it took me a while to adjust, but I was happy to retire. It was a great decision to make, and I made it at the right time because I was still top of my game. You um, alluded, Steve, to money 
briefly there. Um, we asked this of all of our guests. Uh, has boxing made you rich? Yeah, boxing made me rich financially and boxing made me rich personally. The money I made in my day was a good payday. The biggest payday I made in my day would not buy the house across the street from where I live now. But the money I made then was enough to buy the house I live in now. So people say to me, oh, you're rich. Yes, I have a lovely property. No money in the bank, but I have something that's of value. So I'm secure. Um, but the most important things what I have now is I'm, I'm very extremely happy. And I, my life is great. And, and I, I, I love where I live. I love how I live. And, and I've got great family around me. I'm, I'm blessed. And you've got a farm, haven't you, Steve? Yeah, well, farming is what I do. It's, it was, as a kid, it was my dream. I'm living the dream. I mean, it's hard work, <laughs> but I love it. I'm living the dream, yeah. If there's anything that you could change in your career, what would it be? Nothing. Where I am today is the best place in the world for me. I wouldn't change a thing. So if everything that happened led me to where I am today, I would change nothing. I could have walked down the street and took a left turn instead of a right turn and ended up somewhere different. So wherever turns I took, whatever mistakes I made, whatever happened for me, to bring me to where I am at this moment in life, everything that happened for me but, but, but was, was perfect and was good and I wouldn't change a thing. Steve Collins, it's been a pleasure having you on Fighting My Life here on Talk Sport. Myself and Spencer have thoroughly enjoyed your company and what a night. The first defeat for Chris Eubank. You became a double world champion in your home country of Ireland and went on to have a really good career following that fight. You're retired now, farming, planting hedges, getting the hay in. Uh, it's been so much fun having you on the show, Steve, and thank you for being so open and honest. I actually enjoyed it. Thank you. I didn't think it would be... It's finally interesting, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, Steve Collins on Fighting My Life with myself and Spencer Oliver. Thank you for listening. This is Talk Sport. Keep listening. We have plenty more boxing life stories to come. Until next time, it's goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.